Indigenous and rural communities protect up to 80% of global biodiversity, but they also don't receive very much in return. Welcome to another episode of The Net Zero Life. I'm your host, Nathan Svee, and I'm working to share the lessons and philosophies from leaders working in climate so you can live a sustainable life that brings the world closer to net zero emissions. There are many reasons we as humans should work to achieve net zero. One of those is to improve the lives of individuals who occupy planet Earth. Many of the conversations I've had on the net zero life focus around market-based mechanisms that will move the world closer to net zero emissions. Today on the show, I'm speaking with an expert who has a different way one that focuses on environmental justice and the role of being a global citizen. Is it fair that less developed countries who have emitted negligible emissions should be the most impacted by climate change? And then should those individuals and countries not be given funding to adapt to the new climate they have to face? To answer those questions and more, I'm speaking with Andrea Johnson, Executive Director of Green Empowerment. Green Empowerment's mission is to bring renewable energy and clean water to rural communities globally. The heart of Green Empowerment's model is authentic partnership. They collaborate with in-country organizations that know the local language and culture and have a long-term commitment to the region. Following their partner's lead, they design systems that are built and maintained by communities themselves, and they focus heavily on training and providing technical expertise to community members and partner staff to build lasting capacity. In addition to leading Green Empowerment, Andrea is a founding member of Global PDX, and she hosts the Global PDX Speaking Change podcast, sharing the voices of Oregon's global changemakers. Her experience in Oregon's energy industry, the Peace Corps Service, and her beloved small farm project in Ecuador, Finca Monoverde, international conservation and her commitment to social justice fuel her work. Andrea is a graduate of Duke University. During the interview, Andrea shares her journey working on climate, including how she went from NASA to the Peace Corps and now to Green Empowerment. She discusses her work to launch the first payment for ecosystem services, aka paying landowners to protect their forests and how green empowerment is bringing the world closer to net zero emissions by identifying indigenous leaders and methodologies that enable access to zero carbon energy and clean water. Before we jump into the episode, a quick message from Climate People, my favorite climate-focused recruiting agency. Climate People is an incredible recruiting agency working to connect mission-driven talent with companies fighting climate change. Whether you are a candidate looking to build software that helps sequester carbon or a founder looking to hire engineers, Climate People can take care of your talent acquisition needs so you can focus on bringing the world closer to net zero emissions. Climate People is also looking to hire recruiters so they can place even more talented people in roles that help move the world closer to net zero emissions. If you or someone you know is interested in recruiting for the top climate-focused recruiting agency, get in touch with Climate People founder Brendan Anderson via email brendan at climatepeople.com. Okay, let's jump into it. Please enjoy my conversation with Andrea Johnson, Executive Director of Green Empowerment. Andrea, thanks for joining the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, super excited. Uh, I thought that we could start with your climate journey. So like a short history or long history, whatever you want, um, about where you started uh, and then what led you to now your current role as the executive director of Green Empowerment. Great. I love that question because I get it a lot and it's a very nonlinear path, but the, the, the punchline makes it seem like I really planned it all. So in college, I actually was studying atmospheric chemistry and was doing research um, with through NASA uh, research program where I was looking at climate models and trying to um, differentiate and improve the climate models that you're still seeing today being used. And it was awesome. I actually lived on this small island collecting air samples and like working with really sophisticated equipment. And then after I graduated, the second phase of that research project was actually being at Goddard Space Flight Center um, in Maryland, looking at the same climate models, but using satellite data at a desk. And I had this moment where I'm sitting in a business park by myself and it was like super cold. I just remember like the AC is pumping and it's beautiful outside. And I just was like, I like people way too much for this. So that led me to the Peace Corps. Um, So complete 180 from my career path, which at the time my dad was not impressed about. Um, But went to Peace Corps where I served in a really rural community in coastal Ecuador working on conservation projects. So I got really passionate and involved with the intersection of people and land use, and specifically how conservation projects can help and benefit the local community, and actually helped launch the first ever payment for ecosystem services program in the world where a government was funding communities and landowners directly to protect their forests. So this was called Socio Bosque, um, and actually got to work with the Ecuadorian government to prepare them for the Kyoto Protocol um, presentation that they were giving that year. So then I came 
Um, after almost four years living in a 400-person rural community in Ecuador, ended up in Oregon, got into the energy sector, worked here on energy efficiency programming, became a huge fan of green empowerment. I was a supporter, kind of volunteered for them. And then the executive director position came available, and it made it seem like, oh, of course, I designed my whole career for this moment. Um, green empowerment works on energy and water projects in rural communities. We have a high focus on conservation in rural communities as well. And um, given my leadership and kind of the consulting background I had, it actually positioned me to for this work. And so it looks almost like it was on purpose now, but at the time it, it seemed just like an amazing opportunity. So much to jump off of there. Uh, you mentioned Ecuador uh, and, and your work there. You also started an organization. I'm going to mess up the name here, but let me know. Uh, Finca Mono Verde. Mm-hmm. Finca Mono Verde. Yep. Okay. Can you tell me a little about that and how that ended up in your journey? And just like, it feels like Ecuador has become like a big part of your identity. No, for sure. For sure. So Green Monkey Farm in English or Finca Mono Verde was a project that we started to work on helping the local community where I had been living for a long time, kind of get back to some of their agricultural roots and doing agriculture in harmony with the forest. And so we started by taking this really destroyed piece of um, cow pasture, basically, and helping let it regrow. We had lime orchard, we were doing permaculture. So really looking at um, how, you know, land use connects to um, conservation and human needs. And over time now, that's been over a decade now, that project, we're actually in the process of handing over ownership of that project to this woman, Vico Castro. And the property was originally her great grandmother's. And we didn't know that at the time when she began working with us. So it's a little bit of our kind of, I would say, experiment in living our own values and some of the work that um, we were interested in. Um, My partners are one of them's Ecuadorian, her husband is French, and then the uh, other Ecuadorian partner. And now there's a coffee cooperative that's managed completely separately from us. um, And they do shade grown coffee and conservation along with that and it's all women run and so it's kind of this micro example of what I think a lot of us you know listeners that on your podcast and a lot of people that are interested in green empowerment hope the world would look like and just for context in terms of uh you know when you were looking at the climate change models when was that if you're you know if you're willing yeah, to share yeah, I know it dates sure. a little bit I started getting into that in 2004 and so then in 2006 and so actually I was working you know I was young it was a fellowship technically and um, I was working with some of the scientists that had were working with Al Gore on his movie Inconvenient Truth and we actually got to go see it and so I got to go see that movie and thinking like I'm part of the world like we're going to change the world like science is so powerful and you know, I think a lot of us agree right now that it doesn't feel that way. It feels like there's actually a lot of anti-science going on right now. And you start to see that already with the response to that film, for sure. Yeah. And when when Trump was elected, I, I try to stay away from politics here for the most part. When Trump was elected, like my partner cried. And I at the time, I like didn't get it. But I watched the sequel to Inconvenient Truth, uh, An Inconvenient Truth, Truth to Power. And I cried, uh, you know, and seeing the, seeing the Trump scenes. And it really was kind of crystallizing for me and helping me be a better partner and helping me understand like a perspective from other people. Um, so everyone should go see that if they haven't yet. Yeah, it was definitely pivotal for me in terms of like, I just came from such a science background and just believed that like we would listen to scientists, right? And that would be influential in our policy. Um, and so I think that experience combined with like missing people, like I just am a people person and wanted to do something maybe more dramatic that I hadn't kind of challenged myself in led me to the Peace Corps. But some of it was just feeling pretty disheartened about the conversation. And again, that was in 2006. So it's been quite a while, right? Right. That's and so 15 years. Oh, gosh. <laughs> when you, you mentioned collecting air samples, were you looking at CO2 in parts per million? Um, so we were measuring a bunch of different things in the atmosphere. My focus on my research um, was looking actually at ozone transfer between the stratosphere and troposphere. And so it was a little bit of a really small world, you know, within these big climate models, but trying to understand how much ozone we were seeing from the, you know, from human impact, which way. Um, so that was kind of what I was doing. And I was living on in on this island off the coast of Maine and New Hampshire, where there was this condemned World War II tower that had been built to check out submarines. Um, little known fact is that the only um, German submarine that came onto U.S. territory was actually in a bay um, in between 
uh, right near New Hampshire and the Atlantic coast. So there was this condemned World War II tower, and I would have to like climb up it and change these air filters and climb down every morning and night. And I just felt like science is so cool. Like this is so fun and interesting. Um, so the satellite data was a bit of a shock, even though probably the right way to go. And it's very sophisticated now. So I shouldn't. Did you, was there anything that inspired kind of your climate consciousness or kicked off your journey? Was it something that you read, something you saw? Man, I grew up with such an activist um, parents. And I think for me, a lot of it was that intersection of people and social justice and the environment. And so... It, it feels like it's so part of who I am. Um, you know, when we talk about women's rights, for example, like I think that overlays when we talk about um, different social justice movements, even thinking about Black Lives Matter last year and the intersection of climate justice and environmental justice with how communities both in the U.S. and globally um, have worse environmental outcomes and health outcomes. Like these things all feel very connected and it's just kind of always been how I saw the world. So no real moment specifically comes to mind all, all good things anyways you mentioned environmental justice and climate justice justice and on green empowerment's website they talk about global global citizenship um from your lens from your experience how do you explain those terms to people who maybe have never heard of them yeah so i'll start with kind of environmental or, or climate justice which are kind of morphing a little bit into kind of similar terms just because climate is the most important pressing environmental issue of our time Um, But part of it from my perspective is that, you know, a lot of the folks that are most impacted by climate impacts are not the ones that caused it. And unfortunately, historically, a lot of um, environmental solutions or even, you know, climate specific solutions have not reached those that might need it or benefit from it most. And so I think a tangible example I would give to folks that happened in in our communities just in 2020 is um, in Nicaragua in late 2020, we had three late season uh, hurricanes. They all came much later than hurricane season and they were quite intense. And Nicaragua is, you know, the poorest, one of the poorest countries consistently ranked second in the Western Hemisphere. Um, You know, they have not contributed very much to climate or to carbon emissions. Uh, They are still struggling and really far behind kind of other, you know, health and poverty indexes. And yet these communities that had no climate kind of contribution to that climate impact are really being struck and and hit the hardest. And so thinking about those communities as we think about our net zero future and thinking about climate is part of how I would kind of summarize the climate justice piece. And then global citizenship, I think one of the reasons I was excited about the opportunity to participate in this podcast is just a lot of the conversation I think in the U.S. around net zero is very U.S. centric, which which makes sense. We are one of the largest emitters and there's a lot of cool opportunities with technology here. But when we take a step back, um, part of being a good global citizen is just thinking about how we're all connected I think it's one of the weird silver linings with COVID is that we really realize like we are all very connected and we need to have a global response to COVID. We we need to have a global response to climate. Um, And I think it's all kind of just being conscientious about how we fit in. One of the things I've loved during during my journey and, and getting involved with climate is the fact that it's like a global issue and it's so unifying and it takes kind of the shared enemy to bring all these people together. And it's been something that's very inspiring. You know, everyone has good days and bad days when they're thinking about climate, right? Yeah, uh, definitely. <laughs> and so, uh, so this is something that inspires me. You um, you talked about like the net the U.S. portion and something I've been thinking about recently. And I'd love to get your take. Is Google is pushing this twenty four seven carbon free energy and in terms of like low hanging fruit, how do you view like either not necessarily Google specific actions, but like US in general and then the individual as the greater collective pushing, should we be pushing, hey, the US should get as efficient as possible, or we can both make the world move the world closer to net zero emissions by helping other countries develop, right? Uh, in a way mm-hmm. that, that either maybe is moving like from coal to natural gas as opposed to like setting up more renewables and and, and, and in that space. So curious to hear. Yeah, so I guess, you know, the more official response to something like that is, you know, the Paris Agreement does require that um, developing countries receive receive support for their um, investment in clean energy and green technology and conservation. So that was kind of even in the Paris Agreement, there was a bit of a framework of understanding that all of these countries are starting in a different position. And so I think we need to have both and, which I'm sure is an answer a lot of people would give, but... 
clean energy, luckily, and you know, the cost of renewable energy has gone down so much that we're going to actually be able to leapfrog, um, you know, we don't necessarily even need to talk about transitioning from coal to natural gas in a lot of the developing countries. We can just go right to having renewable energy as the main source of electricity. I think the conversation from a global perspective is how do we help these countries do that? So as they address poverty alleviation and other serious kind of progress and development goals that they should be able to focus on, those kind of have to come first, right? Like the human health, but allowing that growth to be energized by renewable energy and tying in forest conservation and co- and watershed conservation into that, I think is what the answer would be somewhere where you have a little bit of both happening. Um, I will say though, what, there used to be much more of a conversation and this is like going back to Kyoto protocol days where it was like, well, we should be able to pollute because we need to be able to develop. Right. right? So China, that was one of their um, resistance to joining and China just this last month is not going to invest now in coal plants. The cost of renewable energy is going down. There's other geopolitical reasons, of course, going on behind the scenes that are probably outside my knowledge base. But just understanding that the access to renewable energy and the investments in renewable energy are happening at a rate that we hopefully don't need to be talking about dirty energy solutions in order to also address poverty alleviation. Uh, and, and two things to add to that, right? So I think it was 100 billion that was supposed to be mobilized from Paris to developing countries. And then Biden just doubled our contribution from uh, 5.7, I guess, to 11.4. And so from, again, from like your experience working on the front lines of this issue, where would you put the 11.4 billion that Biden has unlocked for development of, of countries to help combat climate change? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the green empowerment lens there um, is... What we would love to see is a s- kind of creating the mechanisms to unlock those investments t- for distributed renewable energy systems, right? And so one of the things that you're seeing is there's great investment and a lot of increase now in utility scale solar happening in some of the more urban areas or outside the urban areas in the developing world. But we still have a lot of people in the world without access to energy. energy. And so can we create the right types of financial mechanisms to make sure some of that funding goes to these distributed renewable energy systems? And there are some groups that are working on that, and we're excited to try to be a part of it. But it's um, that's still a bit of a question. So there's almost a billion people still without any access to energy. So how do we make sure that as they get access, it's reliable and clean energy? And can we make sure some of those funds go to help these countries with their 100% electrification goals? because most of the countries have those goals themselves. And so we need to create the mechanism to allow that money to get into these distributed renewable energy systems, which unfortunately aren't as financially attractive a lot of times compared to utility scale, but we're getting there. You know, there's a lot of interest investment. There's a lot of smart people working on how to make sure that money actually helps with electrification rates going up as well as um, displacing existing dirty resources. And who are the people working on that issue? Like if somebody wants to get involved on an individual basis, either through voting or either through their career, like what are they working in? What are, what's their background? What are the skills that they have? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, some of the folks that I know that are really working on the actual mechanism, like allowing energy credits, for example, to be applicable to these projects. There's a group um, that was formed out of UC Berkeley called Energy Peace Partners. They just had the first international renewable energy credit that goes to a conflict area. Um, So again, trying to unlock the funding to deploy renewable energy in an area that's otherwise quite hard to serve because of civil unrest. There's another group um, that's working, it's called the DREC initiative, so Distributed Renewable Energy Credit Initiative. Um, And there's some really exciting work coming out of them. They're about to, I think, get their first pilot project off the ground next year. In general, though, like big picture is, you know, the International Energy Agency is the one that is like doing the reporting, kind of understanding this, provides the data, to kind of help you see the landscape. And then within that, there are so many ways to get involved, whether it's an organization like Green Empowerment, like what we do is work with in-country organizations to install renewable energy and clean water systems in rural communities. So that's how we're doing it, really ground up approach, looking at access in those last mile communities. But then there's, you know, we're kind of on the exact opposite end of the spectrum from World Bank, right? So World Bank is also interested in this and talking about it and finding funding mechanisms to deploy this capital. So those are kind of the two bookends. And there's a little bit of everything in between, whether you're an engineer um, doing more marketing, you know, whatever your interest is, it's there's a pretty robust sector um, 
that's working across public, private, nonprofit. I'd love to talk about green empower- green empowerment and kind of their lens for how to do this work. And I'm gonna I'm gonna attempt to read something uh, that came from Green Empowerment's organizational theory uh, that you guys have shared. So it's the introduction to the um, the piece that you put out. And uh, just for people to give people context, I, it's so incredible. Since 1997, Green Empowerment has worked with local partners around the world to strengthen communities by delivering renewable energy, safe water, and complementary complementary health, economic, and environmental projects. They do it by addressing two of the most pressing issues of our time, poverty and climate change. Greater access to clean energy and potable water, coupled with watershed restoration, are important means for improving health, stimulating income-generating activities, increasing opportunities, and enhancing overall quality of life in ways that respect the natural environment. I'm going to skip to the end here, which is that green empowerment's projects aim to improve health well-being, are sustainable over time, limit the impacts of climate change, and have the potential for broad impact beyond any one community. I mean, clearly amazing work. That is like such an intersection of what we talked about. You were talking about climate justice, environmental justice, and uh, you know, global health development ov- overall. How did tell me about that theory and how that came into play? What lessons you've learned from spending time, or not necessarily you, but the organization as time? like spending uh kind of like being in the trenches of the global climate and poverty fight for 25 years i love that question i also just love that somebody also read our organizational theory because i have the actual diagram printed out and referred to it because i do think it's a bit of an academic exercise in some ways for people but it is really grounding and it helps me as the executive director always just think about why we're doing this and what are we trying to achieve um so a bit of a long story short, short but I think it, it is interesting and important um, because of that global citizenship piece is that um, in 1987, there was an engineer from Portland who was working in Nicaragua with rural communities. Um, he was developing microhydro systems, and he was actually killed by U.S.-funded Contras at the time, and he was the first American killed in that civil unrest. Um, so that was in April 1987. And that evening, a group of um, social justice activists, warriors, if you will, in, in Portland, gathered together to pro- protest U.S. intervention abroad. But they also were raising funds to continue Ben's projects in his honor. And so I feel like the heart and the values of Green Empowerment really grew from that, where it's this intersection of kind of understanding social justice, understanding our place in the world and how we are globally connected, but also being really practical, like very practical, like energy access in rural communities. It's a very practical thing. Let's use the local resources. Let's protect the watershed that feeds into that microhydro system. Let's create a financial mechanism to sustain it over time. Like that's all very practical. And and that balance between kind of social justice, passion, believing in a more equitable world, plus the practical implementation of energy and water projects, I think is just what has kind of spurred green empowerment into such a growth phase that we're also in right now as we approach our 25th anniversary. But I think an interesting thing in terms of how it's all connected as well, like we talk quite a bit with net zero around energy, but also forestry and conservation is a big part of that. And so green empowerment's projects are looking at a really small scale on that same issue, right? So if we're doing a water access project, we're looking at how do you protect the watershed? Because we work primarily with indigenous and rural communities, um, that's actually a big part of the biodiversity in the world. I think the most recent stat I read was that indigenous and rural communities protect up to 80% of global biodiversity, but they also don't receive very much in return, right? So how can we ideally create some ways for them to protect that, benefit from it in the you know, in terms of energy and water access, um, but also provide that global benefit of environmental protection. I think the biggest thing we've learned and that we've carried forward is around just local leadership and how, whether it's in the community or local organizations that we're partnering with, they understand the context, they understand how these systems can sustain and be viable over the long term. They often are just left out of the conversation. They're not part of these large global development conversations. So what we really see ourselves the role we play is really technical support and program design support, but also this kind of connected tissue of helping them feel connected and gain the resources they need to do the work that they know needs to happen already. And has your work framed, have you learned from them in terms of informing how you now view either the work inside the U.S. that needs to be done or the work with other countries, like again, like frameworks and methodologies and, and philosophies? Yeah, 100%. I think, you know, in our org theory and logic model, what you read was like the impact beyond any one community. I think it's about always having a learning mindset. 
and figuring out, okay, well, this worked here, maybe this can work here, but let's share it. It's not about saying this is what has to happen, but it's more about creating those spaces for sharing across different countries. I also think a lot of the countries where we work, we're kind of ahead of the U.S. in terms of some of the reckoning on indigenous rights and land rights. Um, and I think that's starting to happen more and more in the United States, um, which is a good thing. I just think it's, you know, we as a society haven't really reconciled very much with the genocide of Native Americans or our history of slavery. Um, yet you'll see in a lot of the African countries where we have relationships and, and throughout Latin America and Southeast Asia, like we've been talking about decolonizing development. We've been talking about how do we make sure we don't perpetuate colonialization. And and we believe we're doing that and, and always thinking that way at Green Empowerment, but there's always things to learn. And I think that's where we have a lot of opportunity in the U.S. to try to reconcile with some of that a little bit more. Yeah. And, and do you feel that like we're still pushing a Western solution to climate change? Yes. In some ways, yes. Um, I think especially, yeah, I talk about with some of my friends that work more. I have a really good friend who's at Netflix working on net zero initiatives there. And we always talk about it like, can we marry what Green Empowerment's been able to do and work with and what our partners and the organizations we work with know with like the sophisticated language and structures of like carbon markets and um, energy credits? Like, can the, can, there has to be a way to combine these worlds. Like, and so that to me feels like where it's interesting, where if you look, like we work with the Indigenous Peoples Network of Malaysia as part of our energy access projects, they'll work with communities to help them secure their native land rights, right? So they are doing that work. They know that work. We don't imply, like pretend like we know it. But then we're over here having a conversation about like, how do we unlock this funding for those same communities? And there's just a bit of a mi- missing middle that I think we have an opportunity to help them meet somehow. And we haven't solved it yet. And there's a lot of great people working on it. But that's, to me, the interesting thing where some of the language or some of the frameworks that are being developed for carbon finance just don't reach the communities that really could benefit from it. And you were talking about earlier at Socio Basque. Let me know if I... Socio Bosque. So, yeah. Friends of the forest. Friends of the forest. You were, you were already kind of doing the early um, you know carbon credits for protecting... Uh, agroforestry or protecting forests, right? Um, and I think you said it was the first, the first credit. Was that tied into any of the UN Sustainable Development Goal stuff? And like, did they get official um, Vera or VCS or whatever it was carbon credits? Yeah. So this is was um, preceded the um, Sustainable Development Goals. It was actually right before the Millennial Development Goals. But it was a framework that was developed by Conservation International in partnership with the Ministry of environment there. Um, and so it was formally recognized. There's a lot of great research about it actually, um, because it was the first where the government was paying landowners directly. The funding that the government had was mostly through outside, um, governments. I know Germany had put in a bunch of funding, for example, for it, but I just, the reason it, like, it's interesting that you brought that up right after I was talking about land rights, because the hardest part about that program and this is a time when I had a really, like, I was literally walking around with GPS units and landowners trying to help them secure their land titles. So part of this framework, even though it was developed, you know, in partnership with communities and by the local uh, Ministry of Environment, a lot of people didn't have land titles that had some of the most valuable forests to protect from a conservation perspective. And so a lot of the work ended up being, like, totally administrative you know, land title development mapping and not at all about, you know, the conservation or, or that what trees were in the forest. It was like just the legal administrative piece. And I think it was just such an important lesson for me early on. And I definitely was very much, you know, I was younger, a little bit, maybe more idealist than like how things are going to play out and just was like, Oh my goodness. Some of the barriers right now are like the landowner doesn't have um, a title and doesn't know how to read right? Like that's the barrier. Like it was just such a human barrier versus, and like, and then this administrative thing that we weren't even talking about, like the really cool parts about saving the world, right? Totally. It reminds me of two things. One, uh, there's a piece I read, I think it was the Atlantic that talked about like why palm oil is just like the most evil thing. And they were talking about, they would go to these indigenous, uh, indigenous tribes in Malaysia or Indonesia and say like, Hey, like we'll offer you some odd money for your, what at that time was like tropical forest. They chop it all down, plant um, plant palm trees, and and the I, I, like the irony is that palm was supposed to be like this like clean, 
better oil for people in America and just, you know, it spins out of control from there. The other thing is it came up in one of the very first podcasts. I was like um, chewing with this question of, is there going to be a future where countries that won the geolocation um, lottery in terms of forestry, as opposed to oil and gas are going to be like paid for paid for the the fact that they have lots of uh that they have lots of forests and that the forests soak up carbon and that they're part that they increase biodiversity and all that stuff do you think that the future holds that that you know brazil like the amazon forest is going to be so valuable that they're going to be paid you know millions of dollars u.s dollars year over year to protect it i would love to say that that's what was going to happen but i thought that that was going to happen 15 years ago Mm. Um, so I'm feeling a little disheartened right now if you read about Brazil specifically. I will say, you know, we work in Malaysian Borneo, um, and Borneo is like one of the most mega diverse places in the world. And I think what gives me a lot of hope is the local organizations there. They are so far ahead of the curve in terms of understanding that intersection and in terms of trying to promote and push their own state um, to invest in a green economy. They believe it can help them spur economic development, reduce poverty alleviation while still protecting their indigenous um, cultures and land rights and things. And so that's what's given me hope more is like seeing the activism from the ground up of folks that they get it, they're living it, and they realize they have something valuable to protect. And they're trying, they're finding ways to participate, I guess you'd say, in some of the more political conversations and but from really practical ways and so that is what really gives me hope right now andrea and i continue the discussion after the break where she walks us through a green empowerment project one that focuses on eliminating the leading cause of death in children less than five diarrhea are you a leader in climate who is working on bringing the world closer to net zero emissions i would love to hear from you reach out via our socials or email nathan at the net zero life to connect with our team can you walk me through kind of the life cycle of a project that Green Empowerment works on? Uh, and then also I'm curious, how do you measure success of that project, either in terms of dollars or in terms of carbon emissions? Great. So um, I'll focus on just a, a water access project first, just because I feel like that makes most sense to people. You know, you go home, you turn on a tap of water, right? Um I don't know if folks listening know, but diarrhea is still the leading cause of death of children under five globally. So primarily through waterborne diseases. So there's a lot of emphasis and interest from community members themselves in terms of improving their own water source and their own systems. And so the life cycle of a green empowerment project, while it always looks a little bit different because of the local context, there's two driving forces. One, there's a community that wants to do it and they have identified it as something they want to do. And there's a local organization that has a relationship with that community and a relationship with green empowerment. And what they, the partner does is really leads that community organizing piece. Um, and then we work more on the technical design kind of program support and help secure funding for that project. And so um, once funding is secured, um, as part of that, actually, the community often has a contribution. Usually it's labor in some way, shape or form. Um, oftentimes, you know, local governments providing transportation or some of those pieces, and then Green Empowerment can bring in the additional cash, so philanthropy dollars or grants to support that project. Uh, the community with the partner really lead the development. So whether it's digging trenches, laying pipes, et cetera, and Green Empowerment provides technical training and support. And so a key thing with our energy and water projects is that we are looking at household delivery, so a community-scale project that improves the energy or water at your home which is a little bit different, say, than digging a well or just having a community charging station, which folks may have heard of those types of solutions. So we're really looking at community access at your home with energy or water. That system is then built, turned on. There's an administrative body that is created. They are locally elected. We provide training. They're recognized by the local government. It looks a little different depending on where they are, but we help them go through that inscription process. And then they start collecting tariffs those tariffs are used to pay a technician who's been trained to maintain that system and also to kind of hopefully save some of those funds to be able to make upgrades or changes when they need. And for green empowerment, you know, we measure success by um, that turnover. So the project actually got built, it got set up, and then there's a turnover where they actually legally own it. 
um, and are managing it themselves. And then what we've been looking at is, is that system still functioning at five-year mark? Because if, if the system is functioning, if people are satisfied with it and people are paying the tariff, then we can assume, in, you know, that's kind of like a proxy for us to saying that it's having the impact that we know that energy or water can achieve. So we do a measurement at the five-year mark. We're looking now at doing it more like two, five, and 10 as we grow. But that for us is like at the five-year mark, if they've made it that far maintaining the system, then it's having that impact. And then what percent of projects, uh, you know, reach that five, five-year mark and, and maintain? Yeah. So interestingly, we just did a long-term evaluation of 27 projects across Nicaragua, Ecuador, and Peru as a way to try to get more of a deep dive and understanding into that question. And of those, only one project wasn't functioning. So I don't know what the percentage is of that, but it's like, you know, less than 4%. High. Yeah. yeah <laughs> or 90, 96%. Yeah. Um, and then where there were issues identified is where we're looking at trying to target future training in terms of operation and maintenance. So um, how often was the system down? You know, if they were having the system down for extended periods of time, what were the issues, et cetera, but all of the systems were working and the majority of people were still paying their tariffs. So those are the indicators that we were using to determine that the system's still functioning. Are there an unlimited amount of projects waiting for your help? Or, um, and if yes, like what is blocking you uh, or green empowerment from then succeeding and and completing those projects? Or do you have to actively seek out and find these partners, these governments, these local communities to help and work with? I think that there are more projects than green empowerment can do. I think for us as an organization, a lot of our own limitation has been our staffing, like our own resources to invest in ourselves so that we can invest in more partnerships so we can help more communities. I think the strength of that is that we really focus on strong relationships, really supporting our partners, making sure that they're supporting the communities that they're working with. The limitation of that is then scale. We really believe in our partnership model. We think it is the best way to do this work in a way that sustains the impact over time is, you know, built with the community. So it addresses like the cultural and contextual pieces that are important. So in order to scale that, though, we need more and more partners. In order to find new partnerships and relationship building is slow, like a lot of people don't want to fund relationship building. But we really believe that that's so important to creating the um, you know partnership that then can then spur 40 projects, right? But it takes that time up front and that investment up front. And that is one of the things that we've been talking about quite a bit at Green Empowerment is like, we really believe in our model. People that we talk to are like, wow, Green Empowerment does it right. And then the limitation is scaling, at, but still use being true to the model and the values, right? And so in order to do that, we have to invest in ourselves. And as an organization that is humble to a fault and puts our ego aside to a fault, and you know, our, one of our board members called us Portland's best kept secret, like that's cute, but not really what you want to be. Yeah. Um, how do we invest in ourselves and still stay true to, you know, who we are and the way we think it should be done? Yeah, I'd love to talk about capitalism for a second here, especially because capitalism loves the one-to-many model, right? That's like, that's why we've grown so much, right? Like over time, and we love force multiplication and all these other buzzwords. Um, and in particular, particular, what I'm curious about is kind of your thoughts on rewarding people who work at Green Empowerment. Um, Let's say that these people have opportunities to work in tech or whatever. Um, And so like, I feel like society says, hey, like your value, uh, your value proposition for working at Green Empowerment as opposed to Netflix. uh, I know, you know, no shade of Netflix is that like you're doing good for the world. But um, should that paradigm be true? Uh, Is it true? Like maybe I have it off. uh, Maybe I'm not looking at it the correct way. No, I think you are getting, I mean, you're opening kind of a can of worms, I think, in the social services sector. There's an amazing thought leader on this, Vu Lee, um, who talks quite a bit about how um, we shouldn't expect people working in social services or nonprofits to also have to be on welfare. Like, they should be able to make a living wage and, and feed themselves and their families. I think fortunately for Green Empowerment, the way we've structured our organization is is more about shifting that paradigm completely, where... While we are a U.S.-based organization and, you know, we're 501c3 and that does enable us to get access to certain funding and, you know, our headquarters is in Portland, um, we really are looking at a decentralized leadership model and a decentralized working model. So our staff are based everywhere in the world. Um, and so 
rather than thinking about, oh, an engineer from Portland needs to go and work on these projects, there are people that are capable in their home countries. They just need opportunity. So can we bring them onto the green empowerment team? And then they're the ones that are really interfacing and working with our partners. So for me, it's like, can we, as an, even though we're small, like just shift that paradigm a little bit so that it's more about operating as an organization, the way we believe the world should be, even if that doesn't make sense to people that are used to strict hierarchy or used to like a very structured, like capitalistic view of running a company. Um, and so that's, I would say the most fun part of my job is like trying to create and structure and run an organization that aligns with the way we see a more equitable world. What do you think are the values that someone who works at green empowerment walks away with after spending one, two, five, 20 years working in the organization? That's a great question. I would love to ask our program director has been with us for 12 years and one of our other program staff has been with us for 10. So I would love to hear their pieces. What I actually think is what Green Empowerment does for those that work and are part of it, it's give us space to work in alignment with the values we already had, right? And I I think to your point, right, there's this whole like, oh, I want to save the world do-gooders. That means I shouldn't make money. And I think Green Empowerment's like, let's reject white saviorism, but let's all work together for a better world. And what does that look like? And so I think pretty much everybody that joins Green Empowerment, we have a really diverse global team, different languages, um, different locations, different backgrounds. And one of the things I think that unites us is this desire to be part of a global community that's advancing something better. And I think at least what I would hope for everybody on our team is that Green Empowerment allows you to live that value that you already have. Because otherwise you wouldn't really join a team like Green Empowerment to begin with, right? If you didn't really believe that there's a way to do grassroots ground up change and have that move the needle slightly, or at least move the needle a lot for a small one community, um, I think that you wouldn't really join Green Empowerment in the first place. How does Green Empowerment's work play into kind of the effective altruist movement uh, and that any of that like the Gates Foundation does with their work with like with malaria or, or kind of similar development goals? Is there overlap between what you do and is your work highlighted? Are people coming to you? You mentioned you the funding that you get. Um, is it from large organizations, single donors? Yeah, that's a great question. I think you know, one of the pros of the sustainable development goals, the framework is that it unites all of us, whether you're the Gates Foundation, and you're really large, um, or, you know, the Nature Conservancy, which is the largest environmental conservation organization in the world, or your green empowerment, that sustainable development goal framework allows us all to say, yes, we are kind of participating in this. I would say one of the things that is really different, um, just to like talk about the Gates Foundation specifically is like, they have done such amazing work to spur innovation. And we, you know, celebrate that. We think innovation is super important. The key difference is like we're doing a lot of innovation, but we would call it ground up or indigenous led innovation. Hmm. So how do you get people that are actually experiencing the issues and living those issues to participate in that innovation? And so I do think there's opportunities for green empowerment to continue to grow in that way and, and use our voice um, as th- to, to share some of those stories and the folks that we're working with, or at least connect the people that we're working with to those types of opportunities. So it's all the same ecosystem. It's kind of just different players within it. Um, and in general, Green Empowerment, you know, we have a really mixed revenue stream. So we have some government funding. It's actually through the UK government right now. We don't have any US government funding right now. We have in the past. We aren't necessarily anti it. It's more about making sure that we are staying true to what we're trying to accomplish and that the revenue comes in to support that. Uh, a lot of it is from individual donors and family foundations, though, because those funds tend to be, I would say, the most values driven funds and the most flexible funds to just like get work happening in communities. What does the future look like for green empowerment? And then what does success look like? Yeah, so we have actually been having some amazing conversations. I'm, I'm very fortunate to have a really engaged and um, board of directors who's been supporting us in this. And that kind of Portland's best kept secret has been this thing like, okay, how do we get over that? And so I think the future for Green Empowerment looks like expanding our global network of partners to help more organizations do this work and do it in a way that leads to long-term impact in communities and ideally helps those same organizations share with others so that, you know, we talk about it in this like decentralized kind of network model where green empowerment's not in the middle, right? So can we create opportunities for partners to share with each other? And it's not just about us. Um, And we're close in some instances. And so we want to just do more of that. So building the global network of organizations that are doing this work so that our strength maybe and our voice is as loud as that of a Gates Foundation, right? 
but it's in this distributed way with a lot of folks working on these in their home country. So it maps to the cultural context, it maps to the environmental context. Ideally, all the money is flowing directly to those organizations. And that's kind of the vision that we're working towards. And what it would mean is that, you know, hopefully we are part of reducing the number of people um, that have access to electricity so that we're not almost at a billion people without access. Um, and I think similarly, you know, over, I think it's 800,000 people a year die from waterborne diseases. So this is actually in some instances kind of life or death. So creating those opportunities, but in a way that is spurring economic development and opportunities in those countries themselves, not just growth here in the U S do you think that individuals, at least U.S.-based individuals, that like the greatest thing they could do is maybe developing their sense of global citizenship, and like that would, you know, just add karma into the universe that would end up leading to the growth of the work that Green Empowerment is doing. I think it's probably one of the things. I think there's an interesting mix. Like, I would love it to be able to happen at all levels. On an individual level, there are really opportunities to reduce our carbon footprint. Um, you know, whether and be part of like the electric vehicle movement. Like, I'm so excited to see recent news today that just came out that like the EV um, industry is like growing and here to stay. And like Ford is making some huge investments in it. Like, those are real signals for what that's going to mean for consumerism in the US in terms of our individual choices. So, I do think that's still an important part of it. But I do think it's part of it also is just being aware as a global citizen and what that might mean in the US might be political activism. We have a lot of resources here. It's about how they're distributed and how they're invested. In a lot of the countries and contexts where I'm working with green empowerment, they don't have the same resources. So it's about getting the resources to make those investments. So it's a little bit of a different piece, but just, I think, elevating our awareness and figuring out how we can have an impact both personally, but also, I think, politically here in the U.S. is is important. I mean, we often say we don't want to make it about politics, but in a country that has such immense resources, it, a lot of it is about how we allocate those, and that does come down quite a bit to politics. Since you brought it up, is there anything that you've done differently in your life uh, since you, you know, you said 2004, uh, you know, super early on, at least compared to me um, in, in, the, in the global fight to stop climate change? Is there anything you've done differently in your own life? And that could be like the books that you read. It could be like your individual lifestyle choices. It could also be like who you vote for, um, you know, take it wherever you want to go. Yeah, I think that um, for me, green empowerment was a huge decision to allocate my like professional time to something that I believed in a lot. And it was a big decision. Um, on a personal level, I had just found out I was pregnant with my first child the day before I got offered the green empowerment job. Kudos to my husband for being a true, I think, feminist, where when I was like freaking out, like, oh my gosh, I feel like this is my dream job and I should go do it. But it was actually a pay cut because I was a consultant before Green Empowerment. Um, you know, he was like, look, if you were a guy, you wouldn't be questioning this. Just go make it happen. So for me, that jump and like investing my full time professional life into this work was was huge, I think. Um, and I'm also so privileged and, and grateful every day to be a part of it. So it also had a hu- immense benefit to me. And then I think on another piece, I definitely have become more politically active again. I think I grew up in this politically active household. And then I kind of drifted away. Maybe that's being youthful, living in a bamboo hut without access to internet for almost four years was part of that. I remember like when Obama got elected, I was like, I don't really get it because I had only read news articles. I had never heard him speak. And then I went and saw his concession or his acceptance speech and was like, oh, that's what people have been talking about. But I only saw news articles. Right. And if you don't see him speak, you don't really have that maybe same passion for it. So I definitely think being more politically active um, and kind of understanding the difference of how to resource my time. Like how much of that time is my family? How much of that time is my work? And then where can I allocate my maybe political time to hopefully make a difference? It's hard a little bit in a state like Oregon. What do you mean? How come? Because we are so much more progressive. Some days we're like, should we all move to a more rural state where you'd be able to flip seats like blue or something? I mean, but- if I'm not mistaken, it was the Oregon Republic- Republican state Senate, right? That like just didn't come to work so that the cap and yeah. trade or whatever it was wouldn't get passed. So yes. maybe Portland. And actually, uh, I know Representative Karin Power who worked quite a bit on that. It was such a um, just such a blow to like, they tried so hard to do it right. They tried so hard to do it right. They did like a whole tour across the state to get feedback from everybody. And, you know, they they really had it. You know, they tried to do it right. And it still didn't even get a vote. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
if you weren't working at Green Empowerment and your work on Green Monkey Farm, which I'm not going to say in Spanish because I know I'm going to mess it up, what would you do? What would you be doing? Wow, that's a great question. I think one of the things I've become passionate about in my role as executive director is I actually started an executive director roundtable. I'm I'm also the one of the founders of Global PDX, which is a consortium of global um, change makers in Oregon. So it's basically trying to unite the Oregon global community together. And so that's something I'm pretty passionate about. And then through that, I've gotten connected to other executive directors who live and work in Oregon, but support global organizations. And I have just, like, I think that's where, I don't know if it'd be like consulting, but how do you support these leaders and to really have the impact and like unleash our potential of our organizations to have that impact. So I get really excited about that. And so I'm very passionate specifically about Green Empowerment's mission, but then also it's like helping people and organizations be their best, I think is a a secondary passion of mine. When I say sustainability superhero, who comes to mind? Hmm. So I guess right now who comes to mind for me um, is this woman, Cynthia Ong. She is um, the director and founder of Forever Sabah, which is a state in Malaysian Borneo. And we are, I have the privilege of working her with her right now on a rural electrification project. Um, but the reason she is such a superhero in my mind is because she is a totally different thinker than me. She thinks in concentric, like everything is circles that is intersecting with each other. And so she's leading this consortium right now in the state of Sabah and Malaysian Borneo that's trying to address a green economy for the future. And she's so good at navigating the political with the like the more technical folks like us with where are the opportunities and also is really well connected and, and, and lifting up the voices of the indigenous partners that we've worked with for a long time. And so for me, she kind of comes to mind as just somebody that's like, I wish we just had more of her in the world that was being really thoughtful about how all these things are interconnected, but also putting in the real grunt work. And some of that's like the political work and, you know, the organizing work to make these conversations feel real and tangible. Like, I feel like we're actually getting somewhere with the project that she's helping us lead. So that's who comes to mind for me right now. Um, what is one book, blog, podcast you wish everyone would read or listen or, or hear? Well, I would have to say my podcast, Raising the Voices of Oregon's Global Leaders, um, Speaking Change. But no, that would be, that's not really true. I do think it's fun for me to do, but not, I would say, what everybody should necessarily focus on. I think I'm going to have to go a little bit heavy with that answer um, and say cast. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. I actually have not read it yet, but it is on my list. Yeah, and I will say I haven't finished it because it's just it's heavy and it's real and I do I think obviously this is a U.S. centric answer um but I do think there is um just such an important understanding of of our history and our economy I think that's like I think a lot of it socially was not surprising but the economic driver of slave like slavery as an economic driver I think it just it just struck me in a way that I hadn't thought of it on a global level, there's a book, Winner Takes All. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. I for some reason, the author's name is not coming to me right now. But it kind of takes a lot of that kind of distribution of global resources that I was talking about before and really explains how our society, our policies, our trade um, has continues to perpetuate this winner-takes-all approach that is really enabling us from achieving the Paris Agreement or reaching a more equitable world. So those are two that I would highlight both pretty heavy but gives you a sense of what i read in my free time no it's great and i think that's you know first of all heavy helps shape my way of thinking and i'm sure for lots of other people as well um and and you're talking about casting you're talking about energy and, and the whole thing is just so wrapped up in the idea that energy is also i'm like blanking on the word right now but energy is is life right like we're so privileged the u.s has burned and put more carbon into the world because we've produced more energy than any other country right and so we have to figure out how to share the energy and do it in a way that also like doesn't destroy the, you know, the one place that we get to call home. So mm-hmm. when I think we have such amazing opportunity to like combine technology and the advancements that we're having with social justice and climate justice, like these things don't have to live separately. And I think that's where I see opportunity just even when it comes to like having a podcast or talking to different people, like let's make sure that folks that are thinking about climate justice are connected to those that are doing the cool tech development. Like we should be all, we actually have the same goals 
I think, in a lot of ways. And that's what's so cool is that like climate climate change. I, I love. Uh, I brought up before about *Sapiens* by Yuval Noah Harari. He talks about how like what makes us human is that we can tell narratives. And to, like to be honest, climate change uh, is a narrative. Although Diego Saez Gill, who's on the podcast, who started um, *Pachama*, talked about how like climate mm-hmm. change is science, not necessarily a narrative, but it's still like a story that we're willing to tell. And what's so amazing is that people are using the story to you know, start organizations that help indigenous communities, but also to do tech and to like make billions of dollars and to do everything. So like whatever it is that you're working on, you can do it. That helps move the world closer to net zero emissions. And hopefully along the way, like alleviate poverty, uh, you know, bring up like the average age for, for humans across the world. So, uh, and also not even humans, right? Animals too, biodiversity, huge part of climate change as well. Um, it just yeah, goes on and on sure. and it's great. Uh, well, I love your optimism because I think it's like some days I wake up like we're going to change the world. And some days I feel like, oh my gosh, we are so ill prepared as a society to confront this reality. But I do think to your point about um, like, what should people do in terms of being global citizens? Like part of it is just understanding that connection and seeing how there are people at, like at every layer that you were just describing that are working towards a common good, even if we speak a different language professionally or culturally. Yeah. A few, yeah, just a few questions to finish this off. One, what support does green empowerment need? Two, is green empowerment hiring? And three, if yes to hiring, what are like what are the skill sets that you're looking for? Yeah, great. So, what we need right now, honestly, is you know financial support. We have um, we're about to celebrate and kick off a 25th anniversary campaign next year, and so we're really looking at using that as an opportunity to garner more support for the organization. I think the other thing is connections, right? We want connections to people, organizations globally, locally that are interested in this and want to be part of kind of our global network because that's really how we get our work done. Um, we are not currently hiring, but I think our next positions will be based in um, probably Colombia and then Southeast Asia. And what we look for are people with high technical aptitude. Some of them are engineers, some are not, but that are really interested in the social element. Um, so we, a lot of our team, they're technical or engineers by training, but something in their life or their career has driven them to really be people centric in that. And so it's about, can you integrate technology into people and relationship management? And so it tends to be a great group because people are very practical and pragmatic, passionate, but then like solutions oriented. Um, and then our, I, I will say, I think the most of our hiring coming up will be in countries so that we have local leaders also representing us with our partners. Super cool. Um, what is, yeah, you mentioned your own podcast when you beat me to the punch because I was going to bring it up anyways. But if there, what's your favorite episode on your own podcast? And if you don't mind sharing the name again. Yeah, so I started a podcast um, last year when, you know, when the world locked down called Global PDX Speaking Change because I'm the chair of our steering committee, which is of Global PDX, which is just uniting Oregonians who work or work globally or or somewhere somehow engaged globally um i think my favorite episode and i'm I'm sorry i'm not gonna remember what it's called i might need to look it up but um my favorite episode was where we interviewed an organization that works with um, deported veterans and one of the reasons i think it was my favorite it was because it was super outside my knowledge base i think a lot of the other episodes are people that are more closely connected to the work I do or kind of like one degree different, you know, okay, we're working on poverty alleviation versus nutrition versus conservation, like those things feel interconnected. But in this episode, we actually spoke with a woman whose brother had been um, in the US military. And after his service, he had like a minor uh, infraction and he was deported. And so it was just something I knew nothing about. And it opened my world to uh, just another kind of, I guess, injustice in terms of recruiting people to participate in the U.S. military with the promise of citizenship that doesn't come. And I just didn't realize it's something I didn't know about and I didn't know the scope of it. And so it just created this opportunity for me to learn something new and connect with some people that were incredibly passionate and had were so like good, like such good Americans in terms of their patriotism that I often sometimes don't even feel myself and yet they were treated unjustly by our system. And I, it just really struck me. 
well, I feel similar in a way for this podcast uh, interview because I'm super grateful that you came on and were willing to share the knowledge uh, of the work that you guys do, something I'm definitely not well versed in. Uh, so thank you so much for your time. Uh, is there any way that people can get in touch with you? Yeah, through Green Parma's website, we have become much more active also on LinkedIn, I think sharing um, some of the stories and our approaches and trying to, you know, one of the things that we talk about is that we want, we want to, we want people to replicate what we do, we want people to know about what we do. So we are really transparent and maybe overshare some of our things, but we think that that's a pathway to have more impact in the world. So those are the best ways to be in touch. Amazing. Andrea, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks again to Andrea for joining us today. You can connect with her and the Green Empowerment team via their website, greenempowerment.org. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion and is in no way reflective of my employer. It's also not meant to be investment advice. This episode was produced by Tawny Levitt, the original music composed by Mitch Bernstein from Climb On. Thanks again for listening. Until next week, I'm Nathan Svee, and this is The Net Zero Life.